titled this message, Spiritual Gifts Part 3, Tongues. But another way that this message, this first half of or first section of the chapter could be labeled would be to consider the edification of the church. Because that is a term that is repeated seven times in this section. Whenever you are trying to study the Bible, to understand a section of scripture, it's helpful if you see repeated phrases, repeated terms, repeated expressions that keep occurring again and again. And when those concepts show up multiple times, you can see that Paul is making a particular point, or Luke, or Mark, or whoever the author is of that given section. So we see here in this section of 1 Corinthians 14, this repeated emphasis on building up the church or the edification of the church. So Christians must keep the building up of the church at the front of their mind at all times. The Christian's great priority must be building up the church. This is what it means to edify. Or, if you're, what is the meaning of the word edify? Oh, it, edify, stupid. Um, it means to build up, to speak words of encouragement and help, and to strengthen others. The word edification is found four times in this chapter, but then the word edifies or edified is found three times, and so this root word is found, the concept is found seven times in this section and points to this primary emphasis here in the first 26 verses. So now let's consider point number one, verses one through five. Building up the church is Paul's priority and should be ours as well. Building up the church is Paul's priority and should be ours as well. We have uh, three main points and um, slides for those. Verse one says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in tongues does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in the tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Before we go into the points that I have, we need to consider two factors up front, and that is matters of definition. Definitions. So this is the term prophecy and the term tongues. These are the two things that are perhaps the most controversially defined in this section. And it would be helpful for you if I just explain what my view is up front so you can not be wondering anymore. So in the concept of prophecy or prophesying or prophecies, there are two main ways to look at it. The first is foretelling, and the second is forthtelling. So to foretell something is to tell the future. So think of a fortune teller, or in my example from last week, he's not here today, so we will go ahead and use his name without him here. Trenton being a fortune teller. If Trenton was telling Anais's mom that her car is going to catch on fire and then it does catch on fire, that would be an example of accurately prophesying, making an accurate prophecy. But in the Bible, there are also prophets 
a lot of them in the Old Testament, but some in the New Testament as well. And these prophets don't just say that 40 days in Nineveh shall be destroyed. They also foretell. They proclaim the word of the Lord. So they would say, thus says the Lord. God gives prophets and apostles special authority. And that special authority involves them speaking on behalf of God. And so they have the authority to author scripture or to say, thus saith the Lord, and say something that isn't already found written in the book. That type of prophecy, that forthtelling, that saying, this is the word of the Lord, does not exist anymore in a continuing revelation type of way. God does not continue to write new scripture. The books that we have, that's it. Now, the astute sophomore in seminary will raise pointless questions to debate and say, well, what happens if we were to find the missing letters of Corinthians? Would that be part of scripture? Or what if we found that spot? I think it's first or second Kings where there's a missing number where it's like, and there were dot, dot, dot blank men. Like there, there was a certain number of something and then that number just disappeared from the manuscripts and it was lost. What happens if we were to find that? Well, living in the realm of hypothetical is where you live in seminary land, but that's not where we live in the real world. And so we don't bother with these types of questions. We just say, this is the Bible. This is the word of the Lord. We don't get new revelation and we will cross that bridge when we come to it if we were to find a third Corinthians, these letters that Paul references. That is not a problem that any of us will actually have to deal with because none of us are archaeologists. So you have prophecy that is foretelling, telling the future, and then there's foretelling, proclaiming the word of the Lord. Now, there's a subcategory of that prophecy that is foretelling or proclaiming the word of the Lord in in a way that um, it has been used in preaching class or homiletics class, which would be that prophecy is preaching, or to prophesy, or to foretell is to preach the word of the Lord. That seems to be one of the ways in which the word is used at times in the Bible, but I don't believe that that is what's happening here. I think that here in 1 Corinthians 14, this concept of prophecy or prophesying has this reference to the future, of telling things that are going to happen in the future, and then the hopefully do happen if they're good and don't happen if they're bad. Um, But hopefully people are not making false prophecies. So that's prophecy. Then the other is tongues. Two main views that tongues are real languages and the other view is they are not. Or angelic languages, I'm sorry. So um, that this glossolalia, this babbling sound, that that's what tongues is. These are the two main views. You probably can tell already which view I hold to, and you would be right. I hold to this, no, the first, Um, that these are real languages. They're known languages, and that to translate or to interpret these languages would look honestly the same as the way it looks today when I I'm interacting with one of the guys on my team who does not speak English and I do not speak Spanish. So I look at any of the large number of guys on the team who speak both and then they make the interpretation. Hey, how's your arm? Says something about his arm. Guy translates. He says his arm is good, coach. He can throw today. That's what happens. That's the interpretation. 
So these two words, um, speaking in tongues and prophesying, uh, that's an overview of that. I have more questions. I have a question for you all later on, and it is in my notes, so hopefully I won't forget. And that is related to tongues, but we will hold off on that. Building up the church is Paul's priority and should be ours as well. So, subpoints. The use of the gifts is for the purpose of edifying or building up the church. It's very easy in these sections or in any difficult section of scripture to get hung up on difficult matters of interpretation, to get caught up on debates, to say, oh, well, I've been reading all these articles from continuationists and they make the case that this is permissible or open but cautious. And so you get stuck in this land of pointless debate and you kind of miss the forest for the trees and you miss what I believe is the main point or the point of this subpoint, which is that the purpose of all of this, the abiding purpose that continues both from Paul's time to the present time is a principle. And that principle is that the purpose for your gifts is to edify the church, regardless of what the gift is. The reason why God has given you the gifts and abilities that he has given you is not for you, but it is for others, particularly not just others at random, but your brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church. So let's say someone calls you as, I don't know why this has been happening, but I've been getting a lot of phone calls recently from faraway places, far away like Massachusetts, and Connecticut, and Georgia. Hi, is this Providence Baptist Church? And I say, yes, this is Pastor Andy. How can I help you? And they say, well, I was wondering if you could, fill, whatever, fill in the blank. Pray for so, and they act like I've heard of this person before. Pray for Uncle Thomas. He's got a kidney transplant coming up, and I was wondering if you could pray for him. And I'm just like, uh, sure, I can pray for him. How did you hear about me? How did you hear our phone number? I'm not against praying for some random person who I will never meet who doesn't know me and there's no connection whatsoever between me and them. But more recently, I got a phone call from someone uh, wanting to know if this was New Covenant Church. In particular, is this New Covenant Church that's somewhere in the Boston area? Because they have our old phone number on their website. And our old phone number goes to a Google Voice account that is connected to my old phone. So if you've seen those little black and white good news, bad news gospel tracks, that number on that gospel track is on some church's website. And so I get calls from random people every now and then wanting to know if we have services or whatever. So, so this week someone asked if we can help them with some kind of a financial need. And I said, no. Our job at PBC is to care for our church. And then once our church is taken care of, then we can care for others, but we're going to care in responsible ways, in, in wisdom, with caution, caring for things that we can care for. So the local church typically does this through what we would call missions. And so they adopt or they select certain ministries or missionaries that then they're going to support. But it's not just at random. 
They're not just like mailing cash in envelopes to random people in random places. No, there's an actual structure to it, a system, a commitment, a knowledge, a relationship between this church and the person in question. So in the local church, the the gifts that we have received is to build up the local church, this particular one. And sure, we may have the ability to at times bless other people outside of our local church, God may gift some of you to someday be like Kenny and Claire who can travel around and bless other local churches. But even they belong to one particular local church. And so that's their church that they are accountable to and committed to and committed to serving and building up. So each of us should be committed to one particular local church and then that be the church that we use our gifts in order to edify and to build up but we are also not using our gifts for the sake of ourselves, for our own ego, for our own reputation, to build a platform, to build a following, to build a faction, to to make a show of ourselves, but rather it is for the good of the body. Paul places a priority of prophecy over tongues in this text, in this paragraph, because Prophecy is able to be understood by all as opposed to tongues, which can only be understood by the one speaking in that tongue or if some happen to understand it or the interpreter. But prophecy being communicated in the language of the people listening is able to be a blessing to all. Imagine that you're in Corinth and it's the first century and there is all kinds of Corinthian craziness going on and there is danger, there is risk, there is suffering, there is hardship. Someone comes into the church, they're converted, they're baptized, they're added to the church and then they start getting in trouble with their former employer because now they're on Team Jesus instead of Team Zeus and they're not worshiping the false gods, the pagan gods that they had before. And so they they bring this concern to the church and the the leaders of the church pray for this person and they have have kind of a church meeting there and it's all together and they say, yeah, I've got this, this great burden, this problem that like I might get fired tomorrow because my, my boss said, hey, yeah, I've got a problem with what you've been posting on social media, that, that, that thing about Jesus, that quote from the Bible. No, I, I need to speak to you. And then someone in the church who legitimately has the gift of prophecy stands up and says, actually, I have a real word from the Lord. Let me speak this. And then that person comes to the front, not making this up, but really, truly says, the Lord has told me that you will not lose your job tomorrow, but actually your boss is going to tell you that they are terribly convicted of their sin. They want to repent and join you in becoming a follower of Jesus as well. And so this prophet, this one making this prophecy, comes forward, gives the prophecy, tells the person, and the whole crowd, like their hair stands on end, they're just like, oh boy, because that's either going to be true or false. And we don't know right now. But then next week rolls around, and next week, the boss is here with the person. Turns out the whole thing is true. And so this one prophecy is able to then be a blessing to the whole church. Imagine that. Like, if you saw that happen, you would be encouraged, even if it wasn't about you. You would think, wow, that's cool. And I believe stuff like that was happening in the Corinthian church. 
It's in this apostolic era where these sign gifts are happening on a more frequent basis, or at least they're they're happening. And the exercise of these gifts is serving to strengthen the church, to build up the church, to encourage the church. Imagine you're a new convert and you just left paganism and you're coming out of that extreme hedonism and worldliness and you come into the church and you're like, man, I'm not sure if this is real or not. I know my old stuff was bad and I know that Christianity is good, but I'm not sure Christianity is real. But then you can see see something like this in the local church and you realize, wow, this is real. And so your, your your faith is strengthened through this sign, through this gift, which affirms the legitimacy of this whole operation. So, the use of gifts is for the purpose of edifying, building up the church. Paul places a priority of prophecy over tongues because prophecy is able to be understood by all as opposed to tongues, which can only be understood with an interpreter. I believe that prophecy here is foretelling or telling the future. Uh, Illustration. I just gave an illustration. So, application. So, the emphasis is on clarity and being understood. This is the reason why Paul elevates prophecy over tongues because the prophecy is clear. It is obviously clear. When it is being exercised in truth, then it is clearly a true thing instead of a clear lie. I'm going to assume that you cannot speak in tongues. By tongues, I mean real languages that you have not studied. But I will say that if you can speak in languages that you have not studied, then you must ensure that your use of that includes an interpreter, particularly in the context of the local church. When you come up to someone and you start speaking and they don't have a clue what you're saying, you should tap someone on the shoulder who is able to interpret and to say, hey, can you you help a brother or sister out? Beyond this unique context, this unique time in the apostolic era, I believe that the things contained here apply to us in a bit less exciting way, but a more practical way. Consider the challenges of communication. The challenges of communication even in or especially in English. Our Christian terminology is filled with words that can at times be unclear. Our theological language, our Christian verbiage can be filled with words that are not exactly common knowledge. If you are a new Christian and you are here today, I expect that there are things that I have already said that you have either never heard before or not quite understanding at first brush. And so you're hoping that I will repeat it using a different word to define the word I just used. And there certainly will be more words throughout that you may have not heard of before. So our Christian terminology is filled with words that are less than common knowledge because Of this, when we speak or teach or even 
talk in a small group setting, the point is not to show off how many big words we know. It's not the point. It's not about you. It's not about making yourself look smart. The point is to build up others, to edify. So when we do need to use big words, which is part of, it comes with the territory, we should explain those big words. Teaching requires, take, it, it by definition involves taking things that are complex and breaking them down into simple, understandable ways. Not taking things that are simple and making them obtuse or unclear or difficult or complicated. Making the person say, well, I went in thinking I understood the meaning of this thing and now I came out and I have no clue what this is about. That is not the point of teaching. So when we speak or teach, the point is not to show off how many big words we can use or how much we know, but the point is to build up. So when we need to use big words, we should explain them. We need to. We must anticipate the ordinary questions in the minds of our listeners and then go ahead and automatically explain ourselves without being asked. So this is going to require some level of relationship. You're going to actually have to know each other and to know that this person has been a Christian for about a month and they don't really know a whole lot. And this person has been a Christian for a month, but they came out of Roman Catholicism. So they do know more than this person who came out of pure secularism. And then this person grew up in the church, left the church for a long time, then came back to it. So they know all the lingo and all the verbiage, but they have certain associations attached to the various terms. So please, when you are talking, when you are in small groups, when if you are um, the leader or the teacher or even just someone who has something to contribute to the conversation, please think about what you're saying before you say it. That's a rule of thumb in general. But then also anticipate if what you're about to say even makes sense. And then it will it be understood by the person in the room who's the newest Christian. So anticipate their questions, anticipate their, their objections or their concerns. Now, for those who are a newer believer and they're here like, Andy, I've been around you a lot and you've said so many things I don't understand and you didn't stop to explain yourself. I'm very sorry. I've tried and I will continue to try. I often will pause and I will ask the person, I've asked so many of you so many times, wait, do you know what I mean by that? Not to be obnoxious, but just because I need to know. Because I've been on the receiving end of that so many times where some of my very smart friends keep using so many big words and they don't stop to explain them. And so I'm literally sitting there with my phone under the table Googling the entire dinner trying to figure out what we're talking about. They would be more effective. You would be more effective. I would be, we would all be more effective if we took into consideration how much our audience understands and how clearly we need to be, or how clear we need to be and how clearly we need to communicate. I'm not saying to be simplistic, but being clear is the priority. Uh, so I, said, I try to do this in teaching in normal conversation, often pausing to ask, do you know what that is? Because I have been in that situation many times, not knowing what the speaker's talking about, silently Googling terms when they're used, but wouldn't be 
necessary if we pause to consider the knowledge level of those around us. So first, building up the church is Paul's priority and should be ours as well. This has countless practical ramifications, but I want you to think of it in terms of your relationships and in small groups, which are going to be starting up here soon. And that will hopefully reappear in the announcements at the end. So build up the church. Number two, the use of all spiritual gifts must be regulated in order to build up the church. The use of all spiritual gifts must be regulated in order to build up the church. Verse 6, we'll read this larger section now. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? I think what's going on there is he's saying, okay, so I can speak in a lot of tongues. I can speak in a lot of languages. But what's the point in me showing off my Duolingo skills if the content of my words, if it's not Christian content? So you can read an encyclopedia in some foreign language and we can get an interpretation? Okay, but that's not building up the church. You all know lots of things that are completely irrelevant for everybody else around you. Like the first 18 times I asked Jack what he does for work, he's like, it's not that interesting. And he's just like, won't even tell me what he does for work. And I can press and pry and prod and try to get it. No, describe it to me. I want to know. He's like, you don't trust me. Like, it's not that interesting. And then he starts to explain it. I'm like, wow, you're right. (laughs) It's not that interesting. And that's not a slight on him or you or like law school or med school or any of these advanced types of studying that we all have to do for the sake of our jobs. But most of that is not that interesting, but you have to know it in order to be effective in your workplace. But it has no edifying value to the local church. I think that's what Paul is referencing here with verse uh, 6. If I speak to you with tongues, okay, great. You can understand me because you only speak Icelandic and I can speak to you in Icelandic. But if all I'm telling you in Icelandic is how to change the oil in your car by yourself, but you don't have a car, there is no profit. What shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Verse 7, even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it it be known what is piped or played? Have you been to a concert, let's say like a fancy concert, like Lincoln Center concert or um, Carnegie Hall or a place like that, where they have like instruments on stage, there's a conductor, there's a string section, there's a brass section, and you come in a little early and you hear them warming up. What are you hearing? You're hearing chaos. You hear everybody doing their own thing, and then you hear like the trumpeter going off in the corner, and then the strings, but they're all playing different things. And this, this clash of the noise, it's where we get the word cacophony from, it's this, th- these different noises hitting each other in ways that doesn't align, doesn't sound good, doesn't sound like anything, it's just this chaos. What is the point of that? 
Well, musically, there is no point of it. The point of it for them is to warm up and to get ready. But what Paul is saying here is, if these instruments, flutes or harps, when they make a sound, if there is no distinction in the sound, if the sound is all crashing together at the same time in a disorganized way, what is the good of it? Well, it's not. Verse 8, if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? Think of the bugler who's playing his, his bugle in like the Civil War movie. If, as he is playing his bugle, he gets really bad hiccups and his notes start being distorted and you know like three or four of his different little calls that he can make because we don't have cell phones back then and we don't have radios, so he gives a particular trumpet call which indicates certain things, but if he's not trumpeting clearly, you're not going to know the message, such as charge forward or the left half charge forward or Stay back, or go slowly, or everybody turn and run. If these things are not clear, if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? Verse 9, likewise you, unless you utter in the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? There is a temptation For people who have a lot of gifts to like to show off their gifts. And even when these are, particularly when these are speaking gifts, they like to be showy about the fact that they know a lot. And so they will try to impress you with how much they know. That's not the point. The point is to say the things that we have to say in a way that is easy to understand. If you don't do that, what you're doing is speaking into the air. You're just making a racket. You're just making noise, like those instruments at Lincoln Center when they're all warming up at the same time, just making chaos. Verse 10, there are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. They have their importance. They have their place. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks And he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, you. See, this, all of this language here would not make sense if it's not talking about real known languages. The angelic babble sound, like that option, makes no sense in this context. Verse 12, even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you may seek to excel. So now he's bringing out the rules, the regulations. He says, therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit. I will pray with understanding. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with understanding. Otherwise, if you... Bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at the giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. By the way, these words... I'd rather speak with five words than 10,000. It's what we call hyperbole. And hyperbole is exaggeration. 
So these numbers, five and 10,000, would refer to very few or very many. Sometimes churches can be more like a circus than a facility that is a hybrid of a hospital for souls and a school, an academy of Jesus. Because that's what a church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be both a place to care for souls, but also a place to learn of Christ. Sometimes churches are more like a circus than that. And in such places, not a whole lot of learning happens. Not much learning happens in a circus. And also not much healing happens in a circus either. For the church to be effective and to be honoring to God, Christians must be willing to regulate their use of gifts in accordance with Scripture in order to build up the church. So if this church is going to be effective in fulfilling its purpose, which is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, if that's going to happen, all of us, all of the Christians, all of the members of the church need to be willing to regulate their gifts according to the authority of God's word for the building up of the body. Suppose that you can play the trumpet. We'll stick with the music. So let's say that you can play the trumpet and you just really like to play your trumpet. And so you brought your trumpet and you have your trumpet with you right now. And you really want to show off the fact that you can play a song. And so you pull your trumpet out in the middle of the sermon and you just start playing your song. How much is that going to build up the church? It's not. It's going to be a negative, not a positive. Somebody will, several somebodies will probably carry you out. They will usher you out the back door and say, stop it. In order for the church to be effective in honoring to God, Christians must be willing to regulate their use of gifts in, or, in accordance with Scripture in order to build up the church. So we have a couple of subpoints here. Verses 6 to 12. The ability to speak in other languages is of no vital importance to the church if the content of those languages, if the content of that message, if the content of those words is not meaningfully Christian content. And I'm not saying that the only thing that matters is Christian content. No, there's value in you knowing your industry and doing your job. But the purpose of church is not to be all things to all men in every possible category. We're not here to have seminars on how to change your oil or how to um, program uh, Excel spreadsheets in ways that are more effective. Like, that's great, but that's not the purpose of the church. So in order for the church to fulfill its purpose, the words that are said need to be meaningfully Christian. So he uses these terms, revelation, knowledge, prophesying, and teaching. Revelation, I believe here is a a reference to the direct revelation from God, which is writing, authoring scripture. So when Paul is speaking to the church, when he's writing a letter to the, book, to the church of Ephesus, that's revelation. That has meaningful value. But also, after revelation, is knowledge. There are many mysteries of God. There are many things, especially 
in the Old Testament, there are lots of things that are difficult to understand. And so imagine that you have the Apostle Paul as your pastor and you're like, hey, can you explain some things to me? And he's like, yeah. And he goes into the deep end of the pool. Well, that's knowledge. Point three, prophesying. Making these accurate predictions of the future, foretelling based on revelation from God, based on God actually revealing to a person in a truthful way something that has not yet occurred. And then last, teaching, education, instruction. So the ability to speak in other languages is of no vital importance to the church if the content is not meaningfully Christian content. If you can speak in 15 different languages and you are a language teacher, that's great. I'm very happy for you and I want to encourage you and affirm that. But the purpose of the church is a distinctly Christian purpose, which is unique from, hey, we're going to have lessons in Spanish it's Sunday morning at 10.30, actually starting around 11 o'clock. We're not going to have sermons anymore. We're just going to have Spanish lessons. Now, moving on, verses 13 through 19. The use of tongues must be paired with the gift of interpretation in order to edify the church. The use of tongues must be paired with the gift of interpretation in order to edify the church. So, in the modern context, if we are in a, in a place where we are not understanding or speaking the language of the local people, we need an interpreter. If you ever go on a missions trip and they ask you to sing or preach or speak or give a testimony or even just share something from your heart, if you don't speak the language of the common people, the normal people, the locals, you need an interpreter. If you don't have an interpreter, you need to not do it. Chaos in the church does not edify. Chaos in the church does not build up anyone. There must be understanding in what is said and done. Uninterpreted tongues is not a legitimate use of a spiritual gift. But actually, it more so resembles the modern phony or fake attempts to copy. So, here's my question for you. We're going to start with, we have two questions. Number one, raise your hand if you were ever part of a charismatic church. All right, raise it by, like, elbow by your ear. All right, so this is like half the room. Wow. Next question. I want you to raise your hand in the same, level, the same kind of way, like, like, like this, if you ever spoke in tongues. <laughs> No, no, no. Put your hands up and keep them up. Okay. Keep them up, just like that. Now. All right, put your hands down. Got to let Anais rest, because I know her arms are sore from all the gym time. Now, my next question, I lied about how many I I had. I have more than two. I might still have more than three. Raise your hand if you ever faked speaking in tongues. Okay, put your hands down. I think I'm done with questions. But I might have more later. We'll see. Um, 
If you would like to check my source, you can go to https semicolon forward slash forward slash www.penmedicine.org forward slash news forward slash news hyphen releases forward slash 2006 forward slash October forward slash language hyphen center hyphen of hyphen the hyphen brain hyphen lowercase i. And at that site, you will find an article written in 2006 from the University of Pennsylvania, UPenn School of Medicine. They have discovered decreased activity in the frontal lobes of the brain in an area of the brain associated with being in control of oneself while speaking in tongues. They literally did a scientific medical study of the brain of a person who is doing exactly what y'all just said that you have done. And they said that what happens when people are speaking in tongues, it's not using the language part of their brain. So, when we read what Paul says, and he says, I would rather speak words with my mind, this should connect here. There are words said with your mind, there are words said with understanding, and then there are things that are said without understanding. And those things said without understanding do not build up. They do not edify. And that's true even before you did this medical study. But this medical study with the brainwaves and all that confirms that this is a thing. Moving on, point three. Sign gifts verify the legitimacy of the apostles' ministry and were a witness to the lost. Sign gifts verify the legitimacy of the apostles' ministry and were a witness to the lost. Verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, be infants, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people. And yet for all that they will not hear me says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there comes in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. And thus, the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So the apostles fulfilled a unique role in the history of the church. And you need to understand that. It's one of the basic foundational elements about this entire topic of spiritual gifts. You have to understand that the apostles are different from you and even me. My name is not Apostle Andy. The apostles fulfilled a unique role in the history of the church and the history of Christianity. That role is a role of foundation. Which means, not only are they a foundation, but they have the role of the foundation to play. So, think with me about the founder of a company. 
One who lays a foundation, one who establishes or starts a company has a unique responsibility that those who come after him will not have to carry. The skill required to start something from zero, to start a business, to start a church, to start a anything, you're starting something from zero is a slightly different skill set than other skills required to maintain it or to manage something that already exists. For example, the founder of a thing has to deal with the problem of money. They have nothing. They have no money. They have nothing to show. They haven't performed yet. So now they have to go and raise money. If you're doing a startup, you're starting a business, whatever, you need need angel investors to, to buy in, to give you the money that you need to make things work. Um. So the issue is you have nothing to show for, your, for what you have yet. It's still a vision. You have to deal with the problem of people saying, well, I will if he will. I'll get in on this if the other person will get in on this. And then the problem of the one saying, well, I'm not if he's not. And you as the founder have to manage that. It's a unique problem that doesn't exist after the thing gets going. Few people want to be part of starting something from scratch. They might say they do, but when it actually comes down to it, it's very difficult because many people are uncomfortable taking a step outside of the crowd because they have herd mentality. Nobody wants to be the first one to step forward and say, we're going to change this. None of y'all wanted to raise your hand first saying that you spoke in tongues. But once you saw other people did it, you felt a little more comfortable doing it. When you saw Omar put two hands up, then you're like, all right, if he can do it, then I can do it. Now, there's also the challenge for those who are founders of things, those who start companies or whatever. The challenge is for those who are comfortable marching to the beat of a different drum or their own drum, they're also people who often prefer to fly solo and then therefore don't play well with others. So they might have no problem starting a company of one, but they will struggle to cast vision or to communicate compelling goals to others or just cooperate with others. So perhaps they're good at launching out on their own to do a new thing by themselves, but then they struggle to lead others to follow them. There's an entire industry of books to address the problem of founders, such as Founder's Syndrome or The Founder's Dilemma. The founder is more committed to their vision than anyone else. They're more passionate about their vision, more passionate about this project. They're more dedicated to it. They're willing to put in long hours that perhaps others are not willing to put in to make sacrifices that no one else would make. They're funding this out of their own pocket, perhaps, and then they're frustrated by the lack of that same commitment from anyone else. They're like, why don't you sacrifice your vacation time to do the thing? And so that irritates them. So they're annoyed with you for not sacrificing the same level as them, and so you have this friction, and it's difficult to work together. They have a hard time letting go of responsibilities. They have a hard time trusting or delegating because they think that if they let go of this thing, it will collapse when they give it to so-and-so because they did it four times prior and it turned out badly each of those times. They have good reasons for their fears. They've been burned before. They have everything riding on the success or failure of this venture because they invested their own personal money into starting it. The older they get, the more impossible it is for them to start back over yet again or to reinvent themselves at this late stage in their career if this blows up. So the founder's dilemma is very real because founders play a unique role in any organization. 
If you're not a Christian, you're here today and you just want to think about business for a second. There you go. That was for you. The apostles played a unique role in the history of the church, being a foundation. But that unique role is different from the role that I play or you play. For example, the apostles had authority to author scripture, to literally write the Bible. You and I don't have that authority. The apostles had the responsibility of accurately testifying to the resurrection of Christ. Because to be an apostle required that you be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. This is why we know there are no apostles today. Because no one living today has seen Jesus with their own eyes face to face. And then thirdly, the apostles in their unique role have the responsibility of establishing the church. Not just churches, but the church. And so because of that, these apostolic gifts are unique. These sign gifts are unique. They're verifying the validity of what they're doing. They're they're proving and demonstrating the legitimacy of their message. And so they're signs to believers and signs to unbelievers. Tongues was to be a sign to preaching the gospel to people who don't speak the same language as you. Ephesians 2.19 says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20 says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So the apostles have this unique role to play. These sign gifts verified their legitimacy as apostles and they were a witness to the lost. The third purpose for the church, the first is the glory of God. The second is the building up of the body of Christ, the encouragement, the edification, the sanctification of the Christians. That's the second purpose. The third purpose for the local church is the salvation of the lost. And that's what is being referenced here. Verses 22 through 25. Therefore, tongues are a sign not for those who believe, but to unbelievers. You're going out into an area where they don't speak your language, so God gives the ability to speak in that local language. That was what was happening in this apostolic era. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and they come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, they will not say, won't they say you're out of your mind? So you need to have an interpretation. You need to have clear communication because unbelievers coming in will think that y'all are crazy. They're going to think this is chaos. They're going to say, this is a circus. Why are y'all doing this? I don't want to be a part of this. But when there's clear communication, something else happens. Verse 24, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convicted, convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his hearts are revealed. That's what happens in the prophecy. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. That's the purpose. The purpose is that these 
unbelievers, these people who do not know Christ, would see the truth, the legitimacy of what is being proclaimed, and so be saved. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm glad that you're here. Hopefully, some of this has made sense to you. But if it hasn't, let me take a step back and say what makes a person a believer is not their background, their upbringing, being raised in the church. What makes a person a Christian is believing the gospel. And the gospel is the good news. It's the good news that Jesus is a real person, son of God, second person of the Trinity, was incarnate. Incarnate means enfleshed. It means he came into this world, he became a man. He added to his deity without losing his deity, his divinity, his godness. He added humanity to his divine nature. And then he lived on this earth as a a sinless man. And he perfectly obeyed the law of God. God's righteous requirements that you have failed to live up to. You have sinned. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You have fallen short of God's standard. So that's the reason why you have a guilty conscience. That's why you feel bad all the time about everything. Because your your conscience is testifying that you have issues. So what you do is you try to numb that pain through countless ways. Some are legitimate, some are less legitimate. You want to entertain yourself to make you forget about your problems, so you take up hobby after hobby. Or you try to numb the pain through alcohol or drugs, through relationships, just through not thinking. But God actually has a better way to deal with your guilty conscience, and that guilt, that that way to deal with it is through Jesus, his son, paying for your penalty. Because your conscience testifies that you have sinned against God and something needs to be done to make that right. So that's the purpose of Jesus. He came into this world. He lived a life without sin, which means he never had to die for his own sins, which meant he was able to then stand in your place, to take your place as a substitute. Imagine that you go to dinner and you rack up quite a bill and someone else says, no, I'll pay for your bill. So they put, your, they put their credit card in that little dish and push your credit card out of that little dish. That's what Jesus did. He paid our debt. He paid it in full. He did that through his life, death, and then resurrection. So he rose again on the third day and he conquered sin and death. He came back out of the grave. He is alive today. And he says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come unto me, all who are weighed down by the guilt and burden of your sin, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's the message that he offers to you. And if you're hearing this message today, truly today, and you're like, whoa, the secrets of my heart have been exposed. He's talking about me and how I've numbed the pain of my sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit convicts hearts. So the purpose of this gospel witness is that sinners such as yourself would hear this message and so be saved. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for this section of scripture. I pray that it is a little clearer now than before the message.
those who um, have read it or studied it or tried to get a, a handle on what it's talking about would um, go away from this message today feeling more confident in their ability to understand your word. I pray for the salvation of the lost, for those who have come in today who do not know you, who do not believe on Jesus, and that they would believe on Jesus today, that he is a savior of sinners, that he is their savior. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.